Back again with another episode of World History Class with Mr. Lutz. So for today's episode, what we're looking to get into is going to be some African civilizations of the post-classical era. I'd like to place our focus primarily on some of the quote-unquote coasts of Africa this time. One of those coasts, I'm not comfortable using that term totally, but I know your book uses it, so I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and do the same. It's going to be the edge of the Sahara Desert, known as the Sahel, and then we'll also talk about the Indian Ocean coast. I know your book covers more than that, but as far as what we need to stick to, I think that those two coasts will suffice as getting us the focal points that we need for the post-classical era. So let's go ahead and dig right in. So with the key concepts in this episode, I wanted to turn our focus first and foremost to key concept 3.2.1, which is that empires collapsed and were reconstituted in some regions, new state forms emerged. And your book starts out by just kind of establishing some patterns of comparison with Africa. And I thought I'd do the same, kind of summarize what they had to say and maybe build on it a little bit. So some key things to understand. It should be obvious, and maybe it's not, and maybe I'll throw a map in with the podcast link because it's certainly worth checking out. It's a really cool map. Africa is massive, and with its just sheer size, it is way too diverse to distill down to a simple explanation of Africa is characterized by this or that. Um, But what we can do in the middle of all that is try to point out some similarities that exist between some of these characteristics here. So to begin, um, you know, in terms of the state organization we're looking at in Africa, you have some large centralized states, you have smaller localized city-states, and you have stateless societies in, in this era. And these differences are influenced by the geographic features of the area. As I'm saying this, I'm thinking back to Greece and how we talked about the, the rugged geography influencing the development of different types of political city-states. Um, and, and geography is going to be an influence there. The language spoken is going to be an influence. The religion is going to be an influence in these different state forms. Case in point, Ethiopia and Nubia, due to their geographic isolation, being able to kind of be separate from some of the Arab conquests of the 7th and 8th centuries, uh, they're going to be able to remain the last Christian outpost in Africa at this time. And so geography is going to protect them uh, in the southern reaches of the Nile, and it's going to really help them create a buffer between uh, the Arab Muslim invasions and their society that they kind of want to keep as is. And so uh, of those three states that I mentioned there, the centralized, the city states, the stateless, I know your book talks about stateless a little bit more, and I, I want to continue that theme here. So we have a lot of stateless societies. And when we're talking stateless societies, what we're saying there is that they're focused on kinship ties as opposed to being organized around a source of central political authority. So it's the family connections that really count there. And so oftentimes what this looks like, if it's decentralized, um, it's decentralized because it's a council of families who make decisions in cooperation with one another. 
as opposed to top-down decision-making like we've seen a lot throughout this class, especially as we got into period two. And even as we you know, started off with the Islamic empires of period three. And so we hear this and we're like, that kind of sounds appealing, like families working in harmony with each other, collaboratively making decisions and coming to a consensus on certain things. And in some ways it is good, but we can't be ignorant of the fact that this can make it difficult to organize large scale efforts, uh, really difficult to mobilize your entire society for war. It's really difficult to mobilize your people for large scale construction projects. So stateless societies will be a theme in post-classical Africa at this time. But for this episode, we're going to focus our attention on some centralized states and some city states, because the fact of the matter is, is that states are going to produce history in the sense that the Western practice of history is more prepared to investigate. Uh, there's just there's just more primary sources that give us the ability to analyze and kind of interpret and make some kind of sense of the past there. But some other similarities before we move on into some more specifics here. You have a lot of different regions that are rooted in this same larger language family called the Bantu language family. And this is something that we'll discuss further in class. We'll get into a whole lesson on this. There's also a belief in animistic faiths, which, if you recall, is the belief in the power of natural forces that can act as spirits or gods. Uh, But there's also a theme running through a lot of these societies that they also believe in the concept of a single creator god. So there there are some similarities in, in all of these patterns. As far as the differences go, I think they'll work themselves out throughout the episode today, and you'll hear some of those differences as we go through these next couple of topics here. All right, now for the biggest development in sub-Saharan Africa in this time period. Can you guess what it is? You probably can, because all the episodes in this unit so far have been about Islam. So yes, it is going to be the spread of Islam into sub-Saharan Africa that is going to be the hugest development here. And where I see this development coming through in terms of how it connects to the key concepts is it's going to relate most to 3.1 point Roman numeral 3, which states that cross-cultural exchanges were fostered by the intensification of existing or the creation of new networks of trade and communication. And so after the death of Muhammad and prior to 700 CE, so we're talking the span of about 70 years or so, Islam and its followers had begun to spread across North Africa, so staying, staying above the Sahara. And by 711 CE, they had spread across North Africa and made their way across the Strait of Gibraltar and into the Iberian Peninsula or modern day Spain and Portugal. Hmm. 711 CE. Anyone else in the mood for a Slurpee right now? Anyway, um, so this religion is going to find a strong base of converts, as we've talked about before, especially during the times of the Abbasid Caliphate. And it's because this faith had appeal because of its message of equality, its blending of religion and political realms together. It's going to make it an easy sell for these rulers who are looking for a faith that's going to help them further legitimize their authority. So thinking back to period two, that is absolutely a continuity throughout world history. This idea that faith can help rulers further legitimize their rule over their people. However, as we have seen before, uh, there's still going to be some social differences and gender inequalities that are going to remain in spite of the appeal that are provided by the words of the faith, you know, this supposed equality. Um, 
you can talk that all you want, but you got to walk the walk as well. And at times they do, and in relation to other societies they do, but we'll see where that really doesn't hold up necessarily. So moving on, another key concept here, which I'm going to talk about is going to be 3.1 point Roman numeral two. And that is that the movement of peoples caused environmental and linguistic effects. And so trade in this sense is going to be, I think, the biggest promoter of Islam in sub-Saharan Africa. So in period three, what we're starting to see is that communication, transportation is dramatically improved throughout the Sahara region. So that's north of the Sahara in North Africa, and that's going to be in the sub-Sahara region, the Sahel and, and below. And some simple things, um, saddles being developed, brilliant, going to make it more uh, easy to ride and more manageable to ride for the travelers across these vast expanses of deserts. And also camels. Um, no, they're not invented at this point. That would be impressive. But they start to realize that camels can handle the harsh climate of the desert in a way that just no other pack animals are going to be able to do. And it's going to be really the Niger River Valley that's going to be the desired endpoint of merchants who are crossing from North Africa through the Sahara and into the Sahel region. These are typically Berber traders, and they're coming into the Niger River Valley because what they're going to find there is going to be copper, iron goods, cotton textiles, other things, but most importantly, gold. End of discussion. Um, the gold trade is going to be centered during the 10th century in the kingdom of Ghana. Now, Ghana is not where the gold was discovered. It's actually going to be discovered further to the south, but Ghana is going to be the place where that gold is going to come to to meet with these North African traders. And in Ghana, too, there's going to be an ivory trade, a slave trade, and these merchants from North Africa, these Berber merchants, are going to come in droves because they know there is such a great demand for these types of things among the peoples of the Mediterranean. And the kings of Ghana are going to meet with these traders and they're going to learn of their religion, Islam, and they're going to understand that if they can convert to Islam, if they decide to convert to Islam, it's going to help them improve their relations with these merchants and further drive up their ability to raise a larger tax base. Now, I want to be clear with you. These rulers are going to, quote unquote, convert to Islam. But I don't want you to think that this means necessarily that there's these widespread conversions in the kingdom of Ghana in the 10th century as this begins to happen. It doesn't even mean that these rulers even practice much of the faith themselves. Um, their animistic traditions of the past are going to remain a constant feature of their lives. Now, over time, yes, Islam is going to become more and more prevalent, but it's going to take some time before it really gains hold in these sub-Saharan societies. So we're going to make a quick jump here out of the kingdom of Ghana, and we're going to move forward in history a bit onto the kingdom of Mali and tie in key concept 3.2 point Roman numeral 1, which is that empires collapsed and were reconstituted, and in some regions, new state forms emerged. So the kingdom of Mali, it's going to emerge as the successor to the Ghana empire, thanks to the efforts of their first leader known as Sundiata. And it's going to be due to his ability to forge alliances and build up his armies throughout the region. 
And the kings of Mali, just like their predecessors in Ghana, are also going to be Muslims, and they are going to really display their support of their religion by constructing mosques, by attending public prayers. And just like Ghana as well, they're going to profit heavily from the taxes that they're levying on trade goods that are circulating throughout West Africa. Two cities are going to emerge here at this time, um, Timbuktu and Jene, which are going to feature libraries, university, uh, lodging, other features for the traveling merchants. And they're going to be really known throughout the region. But we have to understand that most people in this society are going to continue to live an agricultural life. And even relative to other agriculturalists throughout the world at this time, this is a tough, hard scrabble lifestyle in sub-Saharan West Africa. And it's due to a couple of things, poor soil quality, underdeveloped technology, inconsistent weather. It just makes farming extremely difficult here and really not going to be a major source of wealth. But the key thing that we, I think, need to take away from the Mali Empire, maybe not the key thing, maybe the most interesting thing, certainly the most interesting thing, in my opinion, is going to be the reign of Mansa Musa. This is going to be the high point of the Mali kingdom. The story of his pilgrimage to Mecca is just like one of those all-time great stories that I can just imagine people who witnessed it firsthand just telling their grandchildren, you know, you wouldn't believe the wealth I saw from this guy. Um, Mansa Musa, when he goes to his Hajj, shows off, to say the least, uh, to the point that there's going to be a map developed called the Catalan Atlas. I think it's made in like the 1330s or 40s. I'll, I'll, I'll share a link in the description and I'll give you some more information there. But uh, in this Catalan atlas, Mansa Musa is drawn in it. And he's got holding in it, of course, gold. And he's wearing a gold crown. And it's because this legend, as he goes on his hodge, just grows around him. The famous story that I think you'll hear over and over again about Mansa Musa is that when he goes to Cairo, he throws around so much gold that the value of gold goes down because everyone has it and doesn't necessarily think it has as much value as it once did because it's that readily available in Cairo. And this is going to last, this inflation, for decades there. Um so there's the flashy side of Mansa Musa, but then there's the religious side of Mansa Musa. And when he comes back to the kingdom of Mali after his Hajj, that's where some really important changes happen within his society. Um, he's going to double down and, and dedicate himself and his empire even more to Islam. And he's going to display his devotion, his dedication by investing in the Islamic community there. He's going to be building more mosques, sending Islamic scholars in his own kingdom abroad to study, building religious schools, bringing in religious scholars from throughout the region and even beyond the region into his empire to study. And that's really going to be the lasting hallmark of the Mali Empire under Mansa Musa. So jumping ahead in time to the Songhai Empire, Uh, But going back to one of the earlier key concepts, which is going to be 3.1.3, which is just the idea about cross-cultural exchanges happening in in the Songhai Empire and even in the Mali Empire as well. Um, Songhai will replace Mali, by the way. 
I, I, I don't want to focus on the state part, though. I want to focus on the religious part because Islam is going to continue to be a major facet of uh, sub-Saharan West Africa at this time. But the interesting thing is that what's happening with Islam is that it's syncretizing, meaning that the traditions and practices of Islam as they began and grew out of the Arabian world are starting to merge and blend with the natural ingrown faiths of sub-Saharan West Africa. So those traditions and practices that existed in sub-Saharan Africa, they're finding a way to like mix and blend together with those natural practices of Islam that had grown out of its origins. And so some examples of that, um, we're going to see in this time period, if we were to go into the, the 14th and 15th centuries in the world of Arabia, there's going to be a very, very prominent sense of patriarchy and a lot of separation based upon gender. But in sub-Saharan West African societies, ones that would consider themselves to be relatively Islamic, men and women are going to continue to interact in public. And, and women are going to continue avoid wearing the veil. And the, the, the tricky thing is here is that in, in Songhai, there is a somewhat matriarchal society that still remains, but Sharia law is going to emphasize a patrilineal society, one that's supposed to be kind of controlled and set and determined by males. And so as you have these people from the, the quote-unquote truly, whatever that means, Islamic part of the world are going to come into sub-Saharan West Africa and they're going to look down upon the Muslims of sub-Saharan West Africa because they're going to see this as like a betrayal of Islamic custom. Like you're going to let men and women talk together and interact in society together? This isn't real Islam. Like this is a bunch of garbage. You can't be doing this. But what those men needed to understand is the fact that this religion wouldn't be present in sub-Saharan West Africa were it not for syncretism, were it not for taking some of those ingrained beliefs that have existed in that part of the world and blending them with the beliefs of Islam. And so, you know, we're going to keep moving on here, um, kind of jumping across the continent uh, from west to east, and we're going to move on to the Swahili coast. And for this part of the episode, we're going to focus on key concept 3.1. Roman numeral one, which states that improved transportation technologies and commercial practices led to an increased volume of trade and expanded the geographical range of existing and newly active trade networks. So again, the Swahili coast and this region is going to be located in East Africa. And what defines it is a mix of cultures, because what you have here is the descendants of those Bantu migrations that we're going to talk about in class are making their way to this region. North African Berbers are making this way to the region. Traders from Arabia, Persia, India, China, Malaysia make their way to this region. So what's going to be the great unifier here? If you guessed Islam, you nailed it. So Islam is going to help give these people a common set of values and practices though it again had to be merged with indigenous beliefs as well. And the Swahili language is going to have its roots in the Bantu language family, but it's going to grow to incorporate many Arabic words and phrases over time. So the theme of the Swahili coast is blending, is interactions, is it's, it's a melting pot of sorts. I 
can't believe I just used that phrase, but here I am using it because it's the appropriate phrase to use. And why this becomes a popular part of the world in terms of trade is because Islamic merchants see its value as a market for goods from the East African interior. So what's coming from there? Things like gold, slaves, ivory, uh, other exotic items that are kind of random and, and scattered, but the big things being gold, slaves, and ivory. In exchange, the people of East Africa are going to be attracted to silk textiles, cotton textiles, perfumes, pearls, things coming from the Indian Ocean trade network. So this abundant trade, once again, just as it does in sub-Saharan West Africa, is going to bring large tax revenue in for some of these emerging Swahili city-states. So we're not talking huge kingdoms here. We're talking smaller level city-states, places that you may have heard of before. Mogadishu, Malindi, Mombasa, Zanzibar, Kilwa. All these places have their own kings who organize trade and authority in the city in the outlying region. These cities are going to be known for beautiful mosques, public buildings. Some of them even have indoor plumbing at this time. And their people are going to be the, the height of fashion in the world at this time, just bringing on all those outside influences from all these different places of the world. And much like those sub-Saharan West African states, the kings of these city-states will also adopt Islam. And, and, and like their brethren over there, they're going to continue though to practice their own religion as well. Um, their motivations for adopting Islam, pretty similar. It's going to help them create a more connected relationship with those Islamic merchants operating in the Indian Ocean. But it's also going to help them establish legitimacy among other Islamic states, maybe in Arabia, maybe in Persia. They're going to kind of show them some love and give them some recognition for adopting Islam as well. And that's going to help the region grow in notoriety and its reputation around the region. Today's explainer feature, I've been mentioning some people from North Africa or from the Arab world coming across the Sahara Desert and making their way into sub-Saharan Africa, interacting, observing these cultures and, and letting us know their impressions. But uh, really, there's there's one guy who I'm kind of focusing on here without having mentioned his name yet, but I'm going to now. And I want to focus here in the zooming in feature on a man named Ibn Battuta. And for my resources for this, I, I got a lot from the Office of Resources for International and Area Studies at UC Berkeley, otherwise known as Arias. And they have a fantastic website on Ibn Battuta that I will be absolutely sure to share with you in the podcast description because it is just immensely helpful and uh, big shout out to them for what they gave me here. So Ibn Battuta. Um, He's going to make his way to Cairo in 1326. And the key thing about 1326 and Cairo is this is only two years after Mansa Musa had passed through that same city. Remember Mansa Musa being the king of the Mali Empire. And he Mansa Musa was making his way to Mecca with his posse of thousands in hand. And remember, you know, all that gold being distributed out there. And so Ibn Battuta decided after hearing all these stories about you should have been here when Mansa Musa was here. He probably would have given you a whole bunch of gold. So Mansa Musa was like, I got to get to Mali. Maybe there's some gold there for me. Um, and in honesty, he, he was kind of thinking about that. He was considering the idea. Maybe he's hiring educated Muslims down there. 
he had heard the legend of what Mansa Musa was kind of doing down there and, and knew he had some skills that he could offer. So Ibn Battuta makes his way to Mali and he's he's pretty admirable of the devotion that people show towards learning about Islam. But like I kind of generally said, Ibn Battuta specifically is frustrated at the sight of seeing a lack of segregation between the sexes. He's angered by some cultural practices as to what he sees. Uh, case in point, there's going to be a ceremony that starts in prayer that he's like, yeah, you guys are on the right track with this, but it's going to end with women dressed as birds and they're chanting. And he's just like, once again, you're, you're missing the point about what Islam is and what it should look like in his view. But in the end, he does note his admiration for the stability, for the security and the sense of justice that people seem to enjoy throughout the empire. So he's kind of like, you know, Mansa Musa, I'm not on board with everything, but at least you're taking care of your people and I can get behind that. Um, so he's there. He's, he's in the Mali Empire. And then several years later, following those patterns of those monsoon winds that I'm sure you've read about, Ibn Battuta is going to continue his travels down the East African coast, and he's going to make his way into the Swahili city-state of Mogadishu, which at that time is the busiest and wealthiest in all of the region. And he's really impressed, and I'm really impressed by what he sees, and I think you will be too. The Sultan of Mogadishu is going to, at that time, speak the language of Somali. He's going to speak some Arabic. He has an Egyptian advisor. Um... The city is populated by people from all throughout Africa, speaking different languages. There's women there who are intermarrying with Arab traders, and he's just noting all of this cultural blending that is taking part on this Swahili coast. And he's especially grateful, especially in comparison to that cold shoulder he seems to have gotten from Mansa Musa. He really remarks about the kind treatment that he received from local leaders and believe it or not, the multiple occasions where he was gifted with slaves by some of the leaders that he met, because that trade is just so prevalent in that part of the world. So Ibn Battuta just really making his way all around the world. Absolutely fascinating character. We will look more at him because his travels certainly do not stop in sub-Saharan Africa. This guy is going to make his way from Morocco all the way across North Africa into Jerusalem, Baghdad, making his way to the Hajj in Mecca, going, like we said, to Mali, to Kenya, down from Mogadishu, makes his way through Central Asia, around India, checking out some spots. He's in the city of Calicut, makes his way through the Strait of Malacca into Indochina, stopping off in the country of China, and making his way home. Absolutely fascinating person. Highly, highly recommend studying this guy, as we will in some regard, but he's just one worth checking out even on your own. So for the, uh, the explainer today, I just want you guys to understand if you're if you're sitting here, hopefully not having read the chapter yet, listening to the podcast first, you're thinking to yourself, maybe I've looked at the chapter and I noticed that there's a lot about Central Africa or at least a decent bit about Central Africa. 
and there's a little bit about the West African coast at this time. And Mr. Lutz, you haven't mentioned all of it. And I haven't mentioned all of it. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that we, we can't feel the need to be experts on absolutely everything. We can't feel this pressure that we need to know it all. It's this mantra that I've learned and that other world history teachers who I know have learned over time, and that is dare to omit. And so I'm telling you here as your world history teacher, it's okay if you guys do not read that section. Um, There might be another teacher who's just like an expert on Central Africa, just like what a crime you're committing against your students here, not making them accountable for that information. But I know you guys as freshmen just feel the burden of feeling to be the master of all of this. And I'm telling you right now, you don't have to be. You should be familiar with 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 the Mali Empire, Songhai Empire, Ghana Empire, as you talked about in West Africa. You should be familiar with the Swahili coast. And if you know that about post post-classical Africa, I honestly think that you're in good shape. So my recommendation for today, I'm going back to it. My only recommendation is going to be that you should go back and check out that website from UC Berkeley, Arias, uh, about Ibn Battuta's travels. I just think it's a great introduction to who this guy is and what he did. There's a BBC series on him. There's several books on him, one by written uh, written by a really famous world historian named Ross Dunn. Um, just really well done. If you ever want to do some traveling in your life, let this dude be inspiration for you because I really can't think of any better example than Ibn Battuta. So that's all I've got for you folks today. Uh, Up next, we'll be leaving the immediate world of Islam, at least in the next episode, and we'll be turning our attention towards the Byzantine Empire. But believe it or not, folks, just like everyone else says so far in this period, they too will be interacting with the world of Islam. So stay tuned and I'll see you then. Take care, everyone. Thank you.